0: Drinking with Authors contains adult themes and subjects including discussions involving alcohol. We ask if you are drinking along to please drink and listen responsibly. Enjoy the show.
1: Okay. Welcome to Drinking with Authors. I am your host, Erica Lance, and with me today is Val Willis. Say hi, Val. Hi, I'm Valerie
0: Willis. Nice to be back again, you guys. Yeah. And- so we have with
1: us... ta da da I don't have enough fanfare. I wish I had more people to do fanfare. ta <laughs> da <Dun, dun, dun. laughs> have himself. to introduce him. What are
0: you doing? Oh, Jonathan Mayberry. Sorry. <laughs> I, 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 I. See, I started drinking early. This is the problem. <laughs> they don't normally drink. You know, oh, red oh. wine, a pickle jar, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not exactly, yeah. No, shit. I heard that we can't do this. <laughs> okay. You're pretty. I would do a take two, but Adam's going to post this up anyway, so it doesn't matter what we do. Okay. So, hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the podcast. Hi.
2: Right. Happy to hi. be here.
1: Yay. So, let's talk a little bit about what we're drinking, because obviously Val is already three or four bottles in. So, today I'm drinking Old Smoky Tennessee whiskey, but it's the Mango Habanero, which makes me very happy and on many levels. Val, what are you drinking for um, us? My, my fallback of Rosa Regalia. Uh, and of course,
0: because I live with terrazzo flooring, it's being being consumed in a, a Mount Olive pickle jar. You're
1: <laughs> so fucking classy on this show. Okay. I,
2: I, I'm combining my two favorite things, coffee and mob free. Yes, <laughs> Thank you.
1: We are we are awesome. I actually had an employee at a place I was at put vodka and coffee together at work, and I'm like, "What are you doing?" And he goes, "Oh, this is a dirty hangover." And I'm like, "Yeah, but you're it's still vodka, and you're you're still at work." Yeah, anyway. I
2: I think coffee and Kentucky whiskey is basically breakfast. <laughs>
1: Oh my God. I love that. Okay. Okay. So welcome to the show of drunk people. Thank you, Val, for drinking way in advance for us. I appreciate that. You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah. She normally doesn't drink. She's not lying about that. Um, so Jonathan, um, we heard you're an author. We heard that might be the case.
2: It's, 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 there's a rumor to that effect. Yeah.
1: There is a rumor. It's, I'm not sure if it's a vicious rumor, but there is a rumor. How long have you been writing
0: Oh no! It's not- a
2: question. Like, I in uh, 1978 when I was in college. I was I started writing magazine feature articles. Okay. I did a, a ton over the years. Um, about 1,200 features, about 3,000 columns and fillers. Then I moved from there into nonfiction books. Wrote a bunch of when I was teaching at Temple University. I wrote a bunch of textbooks. And, you know, most for my own classes like martial arts history, and jujitsu, and women's self defense. But also for other people's classes because you know they asked, and, and I, I wrote the the archery and bowling te- uh, textbooks, which is funny because I couldn't hit the broadside of a barn with a bow and arrow if I was standing right there next to it, and my bowling scores are pretty sad. But I wrote the textbooks because. Well,
1: you know, <laughs> well, um, you know it, they say write what you know. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, but I do that,
2: you know. And then uh, in the early 2000s, I decided to take a swing at writing fiction. And uh, my first novel, Ghost Road Blues, went up selling. It did really well. And now I'm writing my 37th novel. And along the way, right. I started writing stories and comic books. And I, I write for Marvel, IDW, Dark Horse, and more recently DC Comics. So I'm writing wow. a little bit of everything. But the only thing I haven't written is what I was trained for: was magazine, which was newspaper, you know, reporting. And it's the only thing I haven't done. Written just
1: about everything else. Do you think you'd want to write magazine articles and stuff like that? Would you enjoy that? I did magazine articles, well, newspapers. Oh, uh, newspapers! Really. Sorry,
2: newspaper. And, you know what? I lost my interest in it really quickly. I, I graduated high school shortly after the Watergate things. So I wanted to be either Woodward or Bernstein, but by the time I was in college, I was more interested in writing features. And I, I started with at, at the write what you know. I started writing about martial arts, which I've been doing since I was pretty much an embryo, and. Uh, so I started pitching and did a bunch of that. Then I wrote other stuff, music and travel and skydiving, science. And, you know. But I don't think I'll ever do the newspaper reporting. I, I'm pretty happy with my current career.
1: Well, you know, depending on who hears you on this podcast, somebody might reach out now and go, we have a newspaper article we want you to write. <laughs> this is going to sound really
2: weirdly arrogant coming from somebody who grew up poor, but they couldn't afford it. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, that's a great statement to make. I, yeah. I, mean, I think that's I, sort of the, the dream of authors is to be able to make that statement. Oh yeah,
2: I mean, I actually am the rags to riches thing. I, I grew up dirt poor in a bad neighborhood in Philadelphia, and now I live, you know, by the oceans in San Diego. And and uh, I'm 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 not going to change this dynamic, this part of my life. I'm just keep writing novels and comics.
1: That is awesome. You have something that is now on. How, okay, ah, woo! Netflix. I love when alcohol hits me. Netflix, Netflix. V yes. yes. Wars. Are you actually a writer on that at all, or do what? What's the dynamic for you on V Wars? Well,
2: the dynamic right now is brief because it only lasted one season and it hasn't been renewed. Um, which a lot of things are not being renewed now because of, of Hollywood is shut down. So, um, you know, I'm not. I'm not. Trying the blues as much about it as I would if it had been uh, uh, canceled for some other reason. But um, during the first season, which they, they shot, I was a consultant on it. I was not a writer on it. Um, if they shop it elsewhere, which I'm sorry, if they sell it elsewhere, and they are starting to shop it elsewhere um, to another network, I probably will be involved in some of the writing at that point. But um, so far, I haven't written for TV or movies, but... Uh, well. Not quite sure. I just wrote my first TV pilot for something that we're hoping to sell. But uh, I haven't written for V-Wars yet. I wrote the books and comics it's based on.
1: I think that's interesting. So I have to ask you, because you're the first author I've gotten to actually ask this question fully to. So I write um, uh, fiction, but I do also write plays. And I've written screenplays. And I have one going out right now, too. And I have a, a, a huge passion thing with my work in thinking about other people writing my work. Because a lot of times, I as a reader, I read a book or something, a comic book, even that I love, and then I see what they do with it, and then it it sends me into my, an an Erica Blackout rage, and I'm like, just give me that back, I will write it for you. Just give.
2: Me. Yeah, I, I'm 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 not in that zone because for a couple of reasons. One, my version of it is always going to be out there. You know, the the four V Wars uh, novels and the, and the runs of comics are always going to be there, so people will see my version of it and. Since the show went on, you know, a lot more copies of that have sold. So apparently people interested in the show did go find my source material. Uh, The same with uh, Rotten Ruin, which is my my teen post-apocalyptic zombie series. Um, Alcon Entertainment, who has that, hired uh, somebody who had written one of the Marvel movies. And um, one of the bigger budget Marvel movies. (laughs) And I'm not going to tell that guy how to, because every movie he's written has become a huge hit. I can't name him yet, but... Every movie he's written is a huge hit. I am not going to tell, you know, as as they say in the South, I'm not going to tell your grandmother how to suck eggs. You know, so (laughs) he's doing his own thing. Uh, With V-Wars, you know, would I have written the show differently? Of course I would. You know, the writer always has a different take on it than the uh, person doing the adaptation. But uh, I'm not not that much of a control freak for a couple reasons. One, as I said, my version's out there. Two, um, it's building my brand, so more people will find all of my books. And three... Uh, I got paid, so their check. <laughs> they they paid me to do their version of it. I'm okay with that, and I will drink today.
0: I,
1: I cheers. I,
0: and I talk about this a lot. And when I when I uh, get asked questions and stuff, you know, I I may not be like New York Times bestseller stuff, but I'm like. I pride myself in being a little bit of a guru because I, I dip in and I specialize and I research, uh, quite the research hound. But I'm always telling people, like, whatever decision you make, you know, make it for yourself and make sure that the trade-off is what you were wanting. Because especially when it comes to marketing, it's always about that trade-off. Do you want to give away the? first book in the series free? Well, I don't know. Then don't do it if you don't know. If you don't have a reason why you're doing that, then don't follow through with that because you're never going to be satisfied unless you know what you want. And it sounds like that's exactly what happened with you. You knew what your trade-offs were and you ran with it and that's awesome.
2: I could have opted not to agree to it, Um, but uh, also, one of the advantages of having had a show like the awards, which was, you know, even though it only ran one season, it was enormously successful Number one in 130 world markets, you know. So, um, I it, it did my career a lot of good. And one of the things it did is that any other project I'm involved in, including the Rotten Ruin movie and other things, I'm now executive producer. So I actually will have wow. say. To do it. So you give to get, you know, and um, as far as the giving stuff away for free, interesting thing about that. One of the projects I'm working on right now. Is called Bewilderness. It's a science fiction slash horror uh, story. And it's something that Audible has asked me to write for them. You know, they asked me to pitch something. I pitched it and they bought it. It's going to be three 30,000-word novellas that will actually go up for free originally. uh, Oh, wow. And then after a while, it'll be, uh, they'll pay for you. you have to buy it. This is part of something that I helped them, a model I helped them prove a couple of years ago they were experimenting with the idea of doing free stuff for a limited window that would then become uh, go for sale. And they asked me to write a short story. I did. I wrote a short story called Lullaby. Yes. And um, read by Scott Brick, who, who was absolutely amazing. And um, uh, my wife came in <laughs> to, to get something, so she's, she's hiding over there. She's no,
1: that's <laughs> catch me you can chime
0: in we love it when the the significant others chime in yeah no we have we, oh, you you,
1: you, can, you can say hi we're not gonna do anything. Yeah. <laughs> say hi Sarah. hi it is nice to meet you
2: thank you you too oh, i love your ears
1: yeah. thank you these are our, our, our ridiculous uh way too many skype calls on a daily basis uh, <laughs> Soon we won't need all that apparatus. It'll just be
0: happening,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. Bye. <laughs> okay. so, uh, nice meeting you. <laughs> bye-bye. Nice
0: meeting you. With,
1: Bye. Uh,
2: with lullaby, you know that went up for free for the month of October. It was. They asked me if I would write, like to write something that would be a gift to my fans, and actually came a, a free to anyone who subscribed to Audible. Um, and it wound up being the number one uh, short story on Audible for that year. Even after they started selling it, it stayed at number one which proved the model. So now Amazon or Audible has this thing where each month they give away, you can get anywhere from I think, up to three of six or seven audio books that are free every month um, because they know that audio readers, once they, they get some stuff free, will continue to buy stuff. So there is a, a some some value in giving stuff away for free. As, as long as I get paid for it, though, Audible did pay me up front. I'm very mercenary. You may have gotten that impression already. Yes. I don't give it for free. <laughs> I don't give it away for free. I still want to get paid. Um, and um, I, I think that's a good idea.
1: No, I, I actually utilize that service on Audible and I found a couple of different um, newer authors by by doing that because I, I think that's one of the things is it's really easy on all of the sites to have very mainstream authors like yourself presented, but the independent authors have to like grab hold of something while they can and jump in on yeah. board and you know kind of present
2: themselves yeah, okay a lot of friends who are independent authors and some who are hybrid authors it's the one one area of publishing i haven't gone into yet but i have a lot of respect for the kind of the new wave of it where people are spending a little more time making sure that the the independent work they do is nicely edited beautifully presented and so on and um, you know any way that you can get your words out there that satisfies you is the right way
1: I like that. I like that advice. Okay, so we're going back in time to you writing um, bowling books, which is <laughs> <it's> hysterical. <laughs> I really want one of your fans to walk up to your booth with one of your bowling manuals to sign. I want that.
2: To Actually, happen. if they did, I would. I would do everything I could to buy it from them because I. I never bothered keeping a copy. It was something I did for the bowling instructor who I was also dating at the time. Um, <laughs> and, uh, would you like to write my my? Uh, Textbook, like well, that's the weirdest come online I've heard in a long time. Uh, but I, I have, I did have, I do every once in a while have somebody come up with, with one of my old um, textbooks. You know, uh, my usually it's my judo textbook, which is my biggest selling college textbook. Which I, I don't teach judo, I teach jujitsu, but I wrote it for my best friend who's a judo instructor, and it just became a really big popular book with judo programs across the country. So, I'll, and that was my first published book. So, I I'll, I'll get that every once in a while at conventions. And some of my old martial arts mass market nonfiction books, people will show up with those and like, how are you getting this stuff? You
1: know? Well, apparently out there, world, who's listening? If you can find this bowling and/or archery, I feel both of those in the same thing textbook. Bring it, bring it next time he's hunting books.
2: Yeah, I, I search eBay all the time for bowling for you, uh, bowling and you, and archery and you. Big oh wow. I, I didn't come up with the titles. Judo and You is the is the first book. They decided to keep the same titles. I'm like, really? They suck as titles. But <laughs> I don't know if good bowling titles were taken. How the hell that happens?
1: What, what was your? <laughs> did you have a title? Did you have one that you wanted to throw out on this bowling book?
2: Um, the bowling one, um, yeah. I, w- I wanted to call it Strikeout. I thought it was nice and dynamic.
1: Oh, that's way better. <laughs> way better.
2: Either a bad baseball book or a thriller. I'm like, okay. I like the title,
1: what if <laughs> or, a, I, or a, like, a dating book. It could be. A
2: date. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the archery one was going to be called Bullseye, you know. And they're like, nah, 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 Like, oh, of course, you don't want to be too on the nose with a archery book. Oh. Anyway.
1: That's just sadness. Yeah. That was okay. for a
2: long time. Ago. So
1: when you, when you started to um, when you opened the, the fiction doorway, when you opened the fiction doorway, what made you choose your genres? that you write in. Because I noticed you don't write Cause a sweet romance. I noticed that that wasn't a thing. Yeah, that may be a thing. You never
0: know. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and oh, it w- hopefully it wasn't the, the, the drive to, to sh- because you were unhappy with, with the titles. You know, you had to get that frustration out. <laughs> well,
2: in terms of genre, though, um, the horror thing started because I had to uh, you know, my grandmother was basically Luna Lovegood as an old lady. Imagine old old part. Old Harry Potter? She believed in everything. And she just wanted to talk all about folklore and uh, all about uh, the different monsters, monster beliefs around the world about history. And then um, in the early, well, the late 1990s, early 2000s, I had a four book deal going with the small press where I had done three martial arts books. And the, the subject for the fourth book was, was not really laid down. So I said I wanted to write a book on the folklore of supernatural predators, which resulted in a lot of silence except for crickets in the room. Yeah.
0: Because
2: my martial arts publisher was like, I'm like, what now? So because he was afraid that my martial arts readers would think I had just, you know, had some sort of a cerebral accident and suddenly decided to believe in vampires, uh, he had me write it under a pen name, Shane MacDougall. Oh! And that book, The Vampire Slayer's Field Guide to the Undead, which is about that thing, came out and outsold all my martial arts books, like 30 to one. And the research for that, which was kind of a, uh, a nod to my grandmother, the um, research for that got me interested in writing <coughs> fiction that used folkloric versions of monsters. Because like, the vampires and werewolves we see in movies are based on fictionalized versions, not the versions for folklore. Like, for example, in no folklore does a state kill a vampire. In no folklore, except for the Chinese... Jinxia vampire, and no folklore does sunlight kill vampires, and no folklore does a vampire have to be invited in, you know, and so on and so on. All of that stuff is invented by yeah. you know, That was invented by Bram Stoker who was, who was Irish Catholic. So it's not from the vampire beliefs, <laughs> it's from the authors putting their stamp on it, which, which fiction is allowed to do that. So I wanted to write one a story where people encountered the monsters in folklore, which were scarier and much harder to kill. And the learning curve results in a lot of, of the a lot of the characters dying because you know hold up across va- a to a vampire and vampires can just kill you anyway because they don't talk about the cross. <laughs> so um, I wrote that, and uh, I wrote it as, as an experiment though. It wasn't I w- didn't really want to become a novelist. I just wrote it to see if I would like it and to get it out of my system. Turns out that's what I absolutely love doing, and. I started in horror, but I also write thrillers, mysteries. I'm currently writing science fiction. Uh, I'll be starting an epic fantasy series right after this book is done. Nice. Uh, You know, I haven't written a romance yet, but I'm not going to say no to it, because if the right idea comes along and I give it to my agent, she can get me a good deal. I'll give it a shot. I'm a romance sort of guy.
1: I... I, I love that. It's funny you say that because Valerie's like <laughs> think, containing herself. You calm down over there, Missy. She, I know. <laughs> when she said, she's ridiculous on research. It was so funny. We were having a conversation last night with somebody and she could not help herself on uh, the twi- you need to calm down that Twilight and the sparkly, shimmery vampires are fairies. And like, she would not let this go for five minutes. And I feel bad because I, I really think Stephanie Myers will never be on our podcast because of that. <laughs> Ernie E. L. James will never show up here. So. <laughs> here's,
2: here's my take on the, on the sparkling vampires thing. You know, none of us are the audience for that because we're not 11 year old girls. Um, and that was the audience she was writing for. Um, no, that's true. And, that's very- but the upside is because those books were so fabulously successful, It opened the door for thousands of other writers to come in and write stories that didn't have sparkling vampires but had vampires or other supernatural creatures or the bad boy, you know, uh, uh, love thing. And I have friends whose entire careers exist because of that or because of Buffy the Vampire Slayer or or something else that was an iconic hit. Um, And anything that opens the doors for writers to be able to to sell their writing, I'm all for it. I I don't care if. It's a vampire drama with sock puppets, man. If it's going to sell books and it's going to open the door, let's go for it. Right,
1: I agree. I'd like to be su- as successful as Stephanie Myers. You know, I you I, I, I would love that. I think we all would. It's just, um, you know, it's interesting when when you take somebody like who who's immersed in the folklore like Val is, and she goes way too crazy research. I'm not They're that. All- I write. She writes paranormal romance and fantasy and stuff. I write horror and erotica. Those are the two genres I write. So I don't have to do nearly as much research, and my research is way more fun.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine it. Yes. Think about research, I mean, Stephanie Meyer, Stephen King, and other people who have written uh, vampire stories weren't trying to write uh, versions of it that were appropriately based. They weren't. They were writing fiction. Uh, Stephen King wanted to reinvent Dracula, which was in, in, in se- itself a reinvention of various different types of, of uh, vampire legends. Um, so, but he didn't bother going back to do the research about you know whether Dracula was even uh, technically a vampire because he's he's they refer to him as a strigoi, and strigoi is ghosts. You know, Str- there are no actual vampire legends in Transylvania. There are pernicious ghost legends in Transylvania. Um, so it's, it's you know, anything a, a fiction guy or, or gal wants to do, totally fine with me. Where I draw the line is when, when they're doing research and they, they think that the, the fictional vampires are the folkloric ones and they put it in a, a, a treatise about folklore. And that's bullshit. That really drives me crazy. You see a lot of... <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm only laughing because I've lost. My- I'm like, why did they even reference this? This is, this is, this is, this is, this is even pre-Renaissance. <laughs> yes,
2: uh, and I've written. You know, I went on to write five more or four more books on vampire folklore. Um, they, uh, vampire universe, uh, cryptopedia. They, they bite and one undead or alive, and each one explores different types of supernatural folklore around the world throughout history. I actually wrote those as writer's guides, so that writers would be able to tap into folkloric things rather than, than uh, purely fictional or retreads of fictional. I have a friend, a comic book uh, writer and artist named Mike Mignola, who does Hellboy. Oh. Yeah, he, almost every monster Hellboy encounters is a folkloric monster, and oh, yeah. I love that. But he tweets them for his comics, you know, his, his version of Baba Yaga is a little different than the, the standard Russian version, but you know we're, we're we're not pretending to write nonfiction we're, we're we call ourselves fiction so we yeah. can talk with it any way we want
1: now that's true and you have to give kudos when they do that it's funny because i think that's not our writer um view so much as our reader view sometimes goes into like what are you doing chuck like it, but you know, if if they do it, they do it well. They use an editor. Um, then I'm I'm a hundred percent on board because we're not going to be the audience for every single writer out oh, there, and yeah. not every person's the audience for us. Yeah. So I know that's. And I just want to throw out something
2: about research too. I'm a research junkie. I started out as you know I'm a science nerd to begin with. I started out as a newspaper, you know, learning newspaper writing, and I did magazine features. It was all research. <laughs> and nowadays, when I write. Fiction, like like this thing I'm writing now, this bewilderness. I had to do research on superstring theory, on um, uh, Max Planck and and his his original views on, on quantum theory. Um, I had to do you go into the whole, all the philosophies about uh, pan dimensional and omnidimensional uh, theory, um, and all sorts of things just to make this this novella work right. And I keep a, a whole stable of experts that I, 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 I tap all the time. I have molecular biologists and uh, epidemiologists. I, I have one guy who's a um, forensic odontologist. It's a bite mark expert. Oh, wow. I was doing a book on zombies, and I wanted to know if zombies could, in fact, do the bites that you see in TV shows. Because like in, s- in some of the movies, you see a zombie bite through a leather jacket and take a chunk out. And I talked to a- this forensic odontologist. He's like, no, no, no if you're a zombie, the dental ligatures are, are decaying, Your bite, the zombie's bite would be less powerful than a human's. Like, ah, cool. Uh, if they bit in a leather jacket, you'd have a bunch of teeth stuck in a leather jacket and a bruise, but they wouldn't be tearing chunks out. So when I wrote my first zombie fiction, I bore in mind what the realities of what decay would do to a reanimated corpse.
1: So. Wow. I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, that, Valerie, right now, you're like for, <laughs> for she's
0: like, ah! <laughs> <to> <laughs> it all. Okay,
1: to stick together.
0: Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, like, like, come up for error on occasion. Like, I have to set alarms. And when I start to do research, I have to set an alarm so I remember to come up for error. And then I have to sort of reassess, am I still on path of what I need, or have I fallen down the rabbit hole? <laughs> oh,
2: I've, I've got comfortable chairs down the rabbit hole. you kidding me?
1: Yeah, I was going to say, she never stops. She's saying, like, she can stop herself. She I did it there. <laughs> it,
2: really, it really needs to be a 12-step program for researchers.
1: <laughs> we Absolutely. should start a 12-step program for researchers. I am
2: Jonathan. I spent four days researching string theory for three lines in a story. <laughs>
1: that's that's okay that would be like hello my name is val i've researched every greek and celtic god that ever existed and i only need one of them for my story (laughs) okay so we have to take a quick break we're going to do that real quick and we will be back with jonathan mayberry Hey, thank you for listening to Drinking With Authors. We wanted to let you know that if you're an aspiring author out there and you'd like to be on our podcast, you can email us at drinkingwithauthors@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Or if you guys have a question, comment, want to tell us some little tidbit of interesting news, you can always direct message us or comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We love that you're listening. We love that you're out there and we look forward to hearing from you.
0: Try not make a mess on my desk? <laughs> I brought the well, bottle.
1: What are you doing that could possibly make a mess on your desk? Bottle and the cup. <laughs> Why don't you just drink out of the bottle then? Well, well that solve your problem. Long well, sippy straw. You know, yeah, we can, can get you like the curly cocktail. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's get the curly kind. I'm totally on board with that. Find that I'm going to
0: attempt to go fishing again after this. And if I catch it like I did last time, I'm going to totally lose it.
2: Just pour the bottle into the stream and if they float up, you know, just grab them out. Yeah.
0: Uh, no, but I usually hit the manatee at least once with the weight of the the, the tack, so tackle. So wait,
1: wait, wait, wait. Did you just say I hit the manatee?
2: <laughs> it's a you won't
0: normally hear
2: in conversation.
1: What are you talking about, you crazy person?
0: We call it the bus line because they come through, like, no matter what time of the year, there's a, a just, like, a line of manatees that are right there in the channel where we fish, and for some ungodly reason, there's 20-plus fishermen, but I'm the only one who will throw, like, that 20-ounce, like, triangular weight out and whack one. And then they make a honking sound, and they splash at their nostrils. Like, he starts to come up to the wall. They're putting it completely.
1: Okay. I want to just point out we've been recording this entire conversation, so if there are any manatee organizations out there, Apparently, you need to have a conversation with Val about her manatee abuse while fishing.
2: Or, or stage an intervention. One, one of the other.
1: <laughs> You're why we can't have nice things regularly, Val. Okay, so, fiction. Um, so you started and you wrote horror. What? Are you a horror reader? Do you enjoy that? Did you automatically go there? Because Well, you,
2: I, I love horror. I, I you know, always have because my grandmother teaches me about weird stuff. Uh, but yeah, I'm a, I'm very much in the horror world. I'm on the board of directors of the Horror Writers Association and the MC of the Bram Stoker Awards. So definitely in the horror. And more recently, I'm the editor of Weird Tales magazine, the rebirth of Weird Tales. So oh, I'm oh. I'm very much in the horror, but not not exclusively. I do read it, but I also read thrillers, mysteries, historical, and you know I read all over the place. Um, i will read whatever appeals to me as a good story. Occasionally, I'll do it on a recommendation by someone else. Um, but since my, my reading is reading so eclectic, a lot of people say, oh, you read this, you'll like that. It's like, oh, yeah, maybe, but I'll, I'll read a, a page of it and see if it's gonna uh, grab me.
1: Okay, so that, that goes into my next question is, as a reader, will you finish a story or will you chuck it if you're done?
2: Chuck. In fact, I, I, am, I am very much a snob about that. If I don't like the first line, I'm done. I am. I've got to like that first line. If I like the first line, I'll read the first page. If I don't like the first line, done. <clears throat> and we're, I'm doing that with uh, Weird Tales too because we had 10,000 submissions for Weird Tales. Oh and wow! Single slot we had left open. Was insane. One week submission window, we got slammed, and uh, 8,000 of them didn't make the cut even to be read, because either they didn't follow the submission guidelines. They were formatted yeah, yeah. wrong, they were the wrong length, the wrong genre. Before, the first lines just did not catch me. I, mean, I don't have any interest in reading a story that doesn't grab me right away.
1: You know, and I think that's an important statement for uh, writers out there, is that you have to draw your readers in. There are some um, people who will just keep going, and I i feel like it's its like reading torture. that will keep reading a book past a certain point. I won't do that. I get super done with the book. I'm like, okay, I'm done. You've yeah. thrown me out of the story. I'm out. Think about, like, when you're browsing in a bookstore, pay
2: attention to what makes you not buy a book. If you pick it up, what makes you not buy it? Those are the things you should be paying attention to. For me, it's you know, of course, I'm attracted by covers and titles. You know, that's why I'll pick it up. I'll read the jacket text, and hopefully, that will be good. Um, if I get, if I like the jacket text enough, and and go and read the first page, if I like, the, you know, that and read the first page, there's a very good chance I want to buy the book. Um, if I'm not sure, I might take it over to the coffee shop inside the, uh, the bookstore and read a chapter or two. Um, but again, it's got to continue to entertain me because. There's too much competition for anyone's attention um, for us to, to waste time with stuff that do, isn't for, our, for us. And I say this uh, with a qualifier. It doesn't mean the book or the story is bad. Right. But I'm not the audience for it. And if I'm not the exactly. audience for it, I'm not going to read it or watch it or whatever. And somebody exactly. else may come through because clearly somebody else liked it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be on the bookshelf.
1: No, that well uh i have a debate about that whether or not because i feel sometimes some authors are just obligated to write a story and they're like look jonathan mayberry wrote the story quick slap it in there versus people going you know this is i feel like there's a something that happens and you might be of this level of fame right now because you're a, a very big deal is I feel like when you're a younger writer and you're doing it, especially if you have editors and stuff like that, you have people sort of watching what you're doing and kind of being a voice of reason at times. And then you get other authors and I go, just is anybody talking to this human being and going like one of my favorite authors. And I've, I've read all of her books and I have no problem because I, I, again, she might not show up on the podcast, but I really enjoy her books, which is Laurel K. Hamilton. Anita Blake series. Front of mine, by the way. Oh, I, I love her books, but there is one book and I'm not even lying. I have it on my bookshelf. It is called, um, the, her in her thing, skin trade right here. I have it tabbed because in a chapter, she says the word wound 13 times in two paragraphs, yes. the word wound. And I had her sign this page. You can see it's signed by her. I, I love her to death. I love her bad guys. This is my probably one of my favorite series of all time. But I'm like, is anybody there going, hi, or, I appreciate you very much. You said wound 13 times in this much space. Can Like, what happens?
2: Yeah, that, that, that's unusual. I don't know why that happened with her book. Um, but I know, like with Stephen King, I, I love Steve. He's a good He's a good guy. He's a friend. But his book, The Cell... They, you know, I know for a fact that the, the copy editor who was assigned to edit that was afraid of editing Stephen King for fear that she'd, be, she'd look like a fool telling him to correct stuff. So the book went out with like 114 uh, mistakes in it, and it was panned by the critics. Uh, Robert P. Parker, his Spencer novels, the last dozen Spencer novels, were rinse-repeat. Or, you know, He was just mailing in a Spencer novel each year. And they were getting shorter and shorter, so they kept having to build up the font to make it look like it would fit into a hardcover. Um, that to me is that's lazy writing and it's lazy editing and they're afraid of it. And also they know that no matter what happens in the book, it'll sell. It'll sell you know half a million or a million copies. I'm I'm not there, and even if I was, I still I love editor notes. And you know, I'm not one of those writers who, who doesn't want to hear from the editor. I want I want good notes from my, from the, the editor who is you know the head of it. But I want good notes from the copy editor and the proofreader too because I don't want a uh, book to go out that makes me look like an idiot
0: and
2: um, no. I don't want to insult my readers I love Right. Them, you know?
0: and, I, and I always refer to Stephen King because if you go to his website he actually has like a part of his website that says hey did you find a spelling error or, or a grammar error in my book send it to me here uh, and, that and that's awesome very <laughs> <laughs> oh, good it, it did, you know. It's it shows that even the we're all writers, we're all editors, but we're also all human, and you can't possibly clean everything sometimes.
2: Right, and you you know if you've written it, there's a tendency to read through the mistakes because you you you're reading what you remember writing not what actually typed, and there's often a difference between those
1: two. And that's one thing i stress a lot is that this is why an editor is important i mean for a starting writer sometimes they can be expensive and if you're lucky you find somebody or friends that can at least help but find anybody who can read the book and tell you there are issues with it do you get to choose your do you have one editor or do you have several editors or do you get to choose them uh i don't get to choose them but
2: um i I work with a lot of different publishers, so I have my editor at Macmillan. I have two. I, I write for several different imprints at Macmillan. I write mostly for St. Martin's Griffin. So Michael Holmes, my editor there, he's my favorite editor. He's he's the one I've worked with for all my Joe Ledger thrillers, my zombie novels, uh, anthologies. He's he's my go-to editor because if we're gonna if I have a new idea, my agent's gonna pitch it to him first because I love working with the guy and he gives great notes. Second, um, but I also write for. Um, for imprints, I've read, there's an imprint of Simon and shoot Schu- of uh, Macmillan, an imprint called Imprint. I'm not sure <laughs> yeah, okay,
1: I, good marketing on
2: that one. <laughs> alcohol was involved, I'm sure. I um, hope so. Uh, but it's a young adult, I, I've done two novels for them. I, I, I've written uh, for tour, um, different editor there, different editor for each project with tour. Uh, I, I have an editor at, at Audible, I have an editor with um, Journalstone with Simon & Schuster, you know, every place, all, all the comic book places. And there are editors that, I, you know, I, even though I don't get to choose the editor, I can choose not to work with an editor if I don't like that editor. There's an editor I won't name who I, you know, replace an editor who was great. When that editor got sick and left, they gave me a new editor. And she was awful. She was absolutely awful. And uh, not only bad editor, but also wasted my time. And I do not wow. like my because I write, I'm a high output writer. If you waste my time, that means something else is going to be impacted by that. So, you know, that editor is no longer there, not because of me, but because other other writers complain, too. So I don't get to pick the editor, but I I love working closely with the editor to make sure that what I do is really um, the best version of it that that can go out. Um, I'm not one of these people who thinks everything I write is so precious that nobody should touch it. I'm not that guy at all. Yeah, I'm
1: no, I think that's brilliant because the moment you become that guy, you're gonna start having problems. Right.
2: Because yeah, you're also just starting to insult your readers, and the last thing I'm ever gonna do is offend or insult my readers because without them I'm a hobbyist. Right. Right
1: no, I think that's a perfect viewpoint because I'll tell you when I Honestly, of this book, and I again, I love Laurel K. Hamilton. I've bought and read every single one of her books. So, so as a reader, I've supported her as an author. I went, I met, I go to Dragon Con, because I'm an error, But I was, I met her there, Me too. and um, it was funny because when I was walking up, I told some friends of mine that I was with what the problem was, and they're like, "Do not get us thrown out of Dragon Con." And Laurel looked at the looked at the chapter, and she's like, "Why do you like this chapter?" And I wanted desperately to say I love your work I love the character that's in it because she has a bad guy that's amazing in this chapter And but I wanted to go did you know that you wrote this 13 times because I had listened to the audio book of this is how I got this particular book and I'm like woo, 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 woo. and I'm like what is happening right and I love that you say that because I think a lot of times celebrities in general forget their fans are who are supporting their thing yes there are publishing companies that want you there are Places that want to put your books and stuff like that, but there's a point that if you alienate your fans, you're not going to have as many of them, and not going to be as popular. Yeah, and you're not going to have as much fun either, because the
2: fans are book nerds like like I am. You know, uh, I, I do I do these Facebook Live things every week. Um, you know, and it's basically me nerding out with with the people who read my books and us all having a bunch of fun. It's not, you know, I don't do them as sales pitches. I do it as this is a way for you know us all to to nerd out on stuff we enjoy you
1: know yes so let's talk about your fans for a moment because um me and Valerie are nowhere close to your level of a writer yet but I've had fangirl moments where (laughs) fans have walked up to me and gone oh my god and gone a little like crazy because of some of my erotica books which makes that even funnier to me but um how do how do you how's your fan or interaction? How do you feel about interacting with your fans? Oh,
2: I love it. It's it's usually it's a rolling party. When I do Dragon Con or Comic Con or any of the other cons I do every year, except this year, um, I I love hanging out with fans. In fact, not only do I like when they come to, uh, to a signing or a panel or something, but often there are, you know I look for events where we can all just find some place to hang out, like the Western Bar at, at uh, Dragon Con, A lot yes. of yes. Hang out there, but also a lot of fans hang out there because that's where the writers are hanging out. And it's you know we're, we don't none of us are putting on airs. It's not like we're there to hold court. We're there to, to have fun together. You know, it's one one of the reasons I do love Dragon Con so much. It's fan run. It's uh, as opposed to something that's corporate. It's fan run and it has that that fun vitality that you know the, the true love of what we're doing there. You know, and all these different you know fan bases colliding and overlapping. It's fantastic. I love fans. And do you I love a lot of them into my books too. That
1: is awesome. So tell us a really fun <laughs> fan moment. You gotta have a couple of really interesting fan moments. I see the look on your face. So tell us some <laughs> fan
2: moments. The very first time I saw a fan cosmic of, of some of my stuff was freaky. I was um I was doing a signing in Doylestown, Pennsylvania for I think it might have been The Dragon Factor King of Plagues, the second or third book of my Joe Ledger thriller series. And a whole group of, of uh, older teens came up dressed like the, the characters from the book.
0: That is awesome.
2: I've never done LSD, but I'm pretty sure that's what it would feel like. <laughs> 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 I was in the house with guns, they had lockers and guns. I'm like, what is it? I'm LSD. You know, stroking out, just, just finding how I got it. Both were
1: <laughs> like, when you saw them, did you know who they were? Like as they and, approached I, you? I one person it wasn't the person who saw So first, I seen a
2: bunch of guys dressed like guys, like a yeah. guy. And at Dragon a couple years later, uh, another fan thing that was really fun, I'm sorry, it wasn't Dragon Con, it, was, um, oh, it was a book festival in, uh, in um, Cheyenne, Wyoming. And uh, they asked me if I'd like to, to go out and be the host for uh, you know a, a fan costume parade. And I asked, sure. 6,000 zombies. <laughs> 6,000 zombies. They were all there. And I became the grand marshal of the zombie parade. We marched all the way up to the steps of the courthouse in oh. Cheyenne. And there's a photo of me standing there with thousands of zombies around me. It's like I had no idea that was going to happen. So fan events like that are fun. I mean, they're just too much fun.
1: Oh my goodness. So, you've won a lot of Bram Stroker Awards. It's funny because one of my friends is uh, Jeff Strand and oh. he does a lot of presentations. Do you know Jeff?
2: Yeah, Jeff's, Jeff's one of my good friends too. In fact, he was the MC of the Stokers and handed it off to me, which is really fun following a stand up comic. He's <laughs> been doing it for 10 years. I'm like, oh, that's no <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, Jeff, Jeff and Lynn, his wife. I mean, they are right. two nicest human beings I've ever met, and Jeff is the funniest human being I know personally.
0: Yeah, you should ask him about his favorite fan moment. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah,
1: yeah no, he had a fan who apparently looked up all of his college pictures and went into pictures everywhere he did, dressed as him. Even put she's a female, put on a fake mustache.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. Although I I got I got one I got one like that. So I was doing I'm known for my Hawaiian shirts. Uh, so I was doing a sign a year ago at a bookstore in San Diego and this young French woman came in. She's I mean I'm six foot four, I'm the size of Sasquatch, right? She's this little tiny cute thing comes in with a baseball cap with b boards on it, like the one I have, a Hawaiian shirt, a tuft of grey chest hair, takes it on, and a fake beard. And so she's cosplaying me. It was, uh, that was... I shit you know, I derailed the whole signing for like twenty minutes. We were all having a lot of fun Cosplaying
1: it. That's actually that's a whole level of fan appreciation is being cosplayed as I've had it about six times now, but that was the winner
2: because she sent this little tiny woman with a very thick French accent, cosplaying me
1: as you know, this big happy, hairy. A writer. It's really hilarious. Oh my god, that's awesome. Okay. So let's let's talk a little bit about your writing process. So because there are some authors that listen to this podcast that is per for another co-host of mine, at least a dozen of them, we joke. Oh my god. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ooh, um, tentacles. Gotta love the tentacles. So um what is your writing process? Are you a plotter? Because you, you do a lot of research, so are you an epic plotter? I'm a planter. Uh, yeah,
0: I, I do I'm, a little bit of both. Yeah, I'm an plotter.
2: I, have, I kind of have to be because I'm writing anywhere from three to four novels a year, plus novellas, plus short stories and comics. So there's no way I could do that if I was pantsing. I need to be able to know where the story's going. So I, what I do is I, I do a lot of preliminary research. I do a bullet pointed out list. Um, that you know for each chapter and each scene, um, and then I then I write the first chapter, which is almost always a couple of paragraphs long. Then I jump forward and write the last couple of chapters of the book. Then I back up and plow, plow forward. Um, I write eight hours a day every day. Um, it, it's my day job. It's what I have to you know. And I this year I'll be doing close to three quarters of a million words for publication between short stories, graphic novels. Individual comics, uh, novellas, novels, and uh, articles and, and essays. So,
1: how many do you have going at the same time?
2: Typical, I mean, technically, I, I prefer to do one novel at a time, but this is a weird year because I sold four novellas, um, and each one has a different due date. So, like right uh, right now, I'm writing uh, Relentless, which is the new Joe Ledger novel, and Wilderness, which is a novella for Audible. But I also have to do plotting for other projects. Like, I, I've got a DC Comics graphic novel that I'm, I'm going to be doing, uh, where I have to, by the end of this month, have to turn in a full outline with the dramatic beats in it, which is going to take several days to write. Um, I just finished, I, I just took a break in the middle of, of uh, Relentless to write three short stories. And um, so, but usually. Wow. The novel, But I have to budget in the time for these other little things. Uh, Do you
1: you ever have a story get away from you? Meaning, like you just talked about writing, you know, the dramatic points. I think that's what you said. There's a lot of liquor in my system. So I think that's where we went with that. But do you ever find yourself like, uh, I know for instance, I'm a pantser. I'm an epic pantser. And then I,
0: I, I like to like do an outline of like some major plot points, but whether or not the stor- story follows that or if I f- understand the full weight of what I've written as a whole nother thing.
2: I I outline too, but I you know outlines are not set in stone. That's why I do a bullet pointing one rather than a lot of a lot of detail. Because characters and plot lines are organic. Plus I'm doing a lot of spot research along the way. So for example in my Rock Rowan series, I plotted the whole thing where the teenager um, doesn't fall in love with the hometown girl who loves him, but instead falls in love with this feral girl out in the wild. But the first scene I wrote with that hometown girl, she became far more interesting and complex than I expected. So I added another scene, another, and then eventually I had to replot the entire book because it turned out she was clearly the co-star. So I I am open to to uh, revising my outlines, but um, I do try to stick to them as much as I can.
1: Do you ever feel trapped by that to be blunt like do you ever feel like you've written this thing it are any of the people that are buying your books expecting ABC to happen and you go I want a
2: X here you go well, no because you know when we write a book we're the god of that universe I, I, I'm not trapped by being the omnipotent creature in the universe I'm creating I can do any thing I want. So if I'm writing it and I you know, I feel like this is pushing me into a corner, I'll just scrap that part of the outline, and rewrite it, get going. Where sometimes I'll write to a certain point and realize that maybe there's a plot point that I thought was going to be great and isn't. I'll put a note in the in the manuscript. You know, I've I this thing, i put been all kinds. Edit this and like lose the storyline, and then I'll keep writing, and then I go back and look for all those little notes I've had that that, that you know, deviate from my outline. I never fix yeah. by it. I, I will, more. I mean, quite often I reconsider, in fact, most often, the thing I change most is, is the ending, the final act. Because oh. as the characters become more real and the plot lines become more uh, uh, dramatized and the characters react to them and, and are impacted by those events, I, I'm thinking, well, you know, is, is the, outline, the ending that I wrote really where I want to go? So I'll, I'll do some reconsideration. You can't expect to have all your best ideas the day you write your outline. That's 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 unreasonable. So,
1: I up, agree. As somebody who doesn't write any outline whatsoever,
2: the advantage <laughs> there are advantages. It's a mathematical formula, of cause and effect. So, as a result of writing the outline, you can foreshadow better. You can lay lay clues and hints, and it also keeps you from writing things that won't ultimately belong in that book. And I don't have the time to waste writing scenes that. I will probably have to cut. I, I, you know, I can get pretty self-indulgent, like most writers. I could write scenes that feel good, but really don't belong in this book. And I don't want to waste my time writing them just because they feel good. I'll make a note about it. Maybe it's for some other book or, or a short story, but I've got to stay on focus. I've got to deliver a novel every three months. Um,
0: and, yeah, and my editor, sometimes she's like, Val, does it really need to be there? And I'm like, well, uh, does it really need to be there? <laughs> like that's, that's the yeah. Val hard talk, and then I have to, I have to take a thing out.
2: Are, I mean, it's important to have people uh, to be honest about it. You know, uh, if, I've, I've written some novels where I really didn't adhere to my plot very well, and they got to be bloated monsters. I had one book, it was close to 200,000 words of of a contractual 140,000. It should have been. So, you know, and I sent it off to my editor because I was at the deadline. He's like, "Um, dude, uh, are are you high or something? I'm like, no. It's like, you realize this whole plot line that takes up so much time doesn't belong in this book. Maybe take it out, use it in another story, and I wind up having to cut. Um, I got fifty thousand words out of it,
1: and so you basically cut a small novel out of it.
2: I did, and that's time I could have I could have used writing something else that I, my agent would have sold. My agent isn't happy if I do that because you know agents make fifteen percent of what you make, and that, that only matters if you're turning out works that she can
1: sell. That makes total sense. Do you ever um, where do you, no going back? Woo, whiskey, where do you get your inspiration? Like when you're coming up with these ideas, where do you get your inspiration from? <clears throat>
2: Mostly reading nonfiction on various science topics. Um, like for example, I was doing a, a I wrote a book called Predator One uh, some years ago. It was the seventh book in the Joe Ledger series, and I had been that came out of I was doing some reading in pretty obscure science journals about the uh, uh, the bio, the ethics of what will happen when uh, drones little you know. Drones you can buy in a store become commercially available because they weren't at the time. And there's a lot of fear about, you know, bad things that can happen with those drones. The same thing, you know, uh, about autonomous drive systems and GPS hacking. So I did a lot of research on that and, and saw all these different things that could go wrong. And I'm like, well, that's a novel. So I wrote that novel. The weird thing is, by the time the novel came out, the, uh, the, the drones were just then made legal for sale commercially. And almost everything that I said people could do wrong with those drones, they've done. Flying drugs <laughs> in the um, And you know, things like hacking uh, planes. Like, we, we since 9-11, our, our planes are pretty well, the cockpit is pretty well secured. Except, in order for them to get their um, uh, flight information, they need to be able to access satellites. Well, if you can access a satellite, you can be hacked. The satellite, you can hack via satellite. Which means you can override any plane and turn it into a drone. So oh, wow. I read an about Air Force One being turned into a drone.
1: Uh, that's terrifying.
2: Yeah, um, and I, I so like I'll, I'll read about uh, you know some weird new disease form. I, I read about Zika long before it was in the news, and I put it in uh, uh, Dogs of War. So by the time and, and right before the book came out, Zika blew up in the news, and you know, but I already had it in the book. Um, what's what's you know what's fun is after I, I tap all these experts and I, I have a nice little secret formula for how to find experts. Um, that's why I tap them. They become like uh, pimps for me or dealers. That the better um, like I'll get emails. This is really cool. Just don't open this around people because it's going to be decretizing fasciitis or some other horrible disease. Sending photos about and all this information. And I did, by the way, open it in an airport lounge once. Necrotizing fasciitis, not attractive when people are around you. Um, But they they all want me now to use whatever cool thing is happening in their field of science as the theme of my next book. And uh, so they're out there, you know, hitting me with all sorts of bizarre ideas. And uh, some of those experts wind up actually in my books. Uh, John Samar, who's the expert uh, uh, epidemiologist, uh, Scott Sigler, if you know him, had uh, turned him on to me because he used him in his books, and then uh, Scott and I started using him so often we, we had a panel with him, uh, the two of us and him at DragonCon, and he's become this rock star epidemiologist. He even grew a ponytail to look cool. Uh,
0: That's awesome.
2: <laughs> I love that. As a, as an ongoing character, and I have another guy, Ronald Coleman, Hold on. Uh, oh. molecular biologist in San Diego. And uh, when I was doing, I, I was, I was, I pitched a comic called Pandemica about a global pandemic hitting, I pitched this two years ago, by the way. started writing it last year, um, and he's been my molecular biologist uh, uh, expert for the whole thing, and now he's actually a character in the story. And a little bit of irony, this is this is Pandemica, right? This is the first issue. Four issues came out. The final issue, which shows how the Pandemica ends, is delayed because of the actual global pandemic.
1: That's hilarious. You know, it's interesting. I started watching that pandemic show on Netflix, and I had to stop because I was like, this came out way before the pandemic, and the listening to it is amazing. And you talked about writing news articles. How do you feel news... I'm totally sidetracking from what we're talking about right now, but how do you feel the news... surprise. We're all surprised by Erica's drunkenness. Not at all. Um, how how do you feel news actually communicates now? Because what's interesting to me is I work with a bunch, I work with 10 other global offices around the world. And what they're hearing and what we're hearing, even what we're hearing from state to state is very different. Like I talked to a friend of mine who lives in, we're in Florida. I live in, uh, she lives in Pennsylvania. What's happening in her state regarding this pandemic is very different than anything you see
2: on the news well yeah I've got some issues with with how the uh, the news is being reported and most of those issues start with how the government is trying to influence how the news is being reported I am I, I am not a believer in the concept of think of, um, fake, fake news that that's a, a term used to help uh, foster propaganda coming from a certain political party not a fan and I don't Give a you, you can be
1: totally political if you want to. Nobody cares on this show, but it's up to you.
2: It, it pulls down to, you know, I, I'm a left-leaning centrist, um, and I, I don't, you know, I have friends who are Republican, I have friends who are far left, but when you get a propagandized um, political administration who just denies all news that doesn't fit their agenda, that fractures the, the public's ability to understand what is real. And as a result, the, the, the news that gets filtered state by state or news service by news service becomes unreliable. And it shouldn't be unreliable. I mean, the news about what a disease will do or what a problem will do should, you know, science is not up to interpretation. Science is, you know, a fact is a fact. Don't don't make it convenient to whatever your political agenda is. And that goes for both sides of the aisle. So right now, what we're seeing is fascist propaganda instead of actual um uh, government working with news services to make sure that both messages are as accurate as possible. So uh, yeah, not, not, not a fan of, of um, political bias of uh, being what interprets the news.
1: No, I agree a thousand percent with you. I thought it was interesting because, um, you know, looking at it and I have a day job right now still because obviously, um, you know, I'm not quite, I'm not quite of your level. And my day job is human resources. What?
2: Stop saying that anytime. It's not a competition.
1: No, it no, it is. I've now declared it a competition. No, I'm just she
0: declared no, I, everything a competition.
1: Everything is a competition to me. No, exactly. I, you know, I look at um, people who've accomplished what you've accomplished, and that's what I aspire to do. I look at what your successful things have been, and that's what I want to do. But it's interesting running human resources and trying to gather information to decide. For 900 employees, what is the correct thing to do? And when you don't have that accurate news, you can't decide what you're doing correctly, which is, you know, it's unfortunate considering we have all of the mechanisms that would allow correct news to occur. We do. We
2: do. And and also we have uh, concerns about uh, public safety that are being ignored that really frighten me. I mean, I write books about plagues. I, every, all the experts, epidemiologists, and, and, and so on, You know, these guys are people I act, literally have on speed dial. And they're telling me one version of it based on actual science. And what I'm hearing is, oh, it's okay to go back outside and not wear a mask because we need to get the economy rolling again. Yes, okay, the economy's crushing us, but at the same time, how many people do you want to bury in order for you to sell uh, you know, McMeals, you know, come on. So no, it, I'm not a fan. And going out, like I was out yesterday, uh, seeing people walking around because the state's start to open a little more with no masks in public, you know. Like, are, you, are you out of your fucking mind? Seriously, are you out of your fucking mind? Ugh.
1: No, you I'm can gonna... be that angry. Trust me, I'm that angry about it because I literally am the one that has to stand in line and go, hi, we're not opening the office. We're not doing that. You know, to my higher ups, to my investors, to everybody go, This is really cute, you think that, but just because like I will be honest, our governor in the state of Florida is a complete fucking whack job. Yeah. Like he's like, Let's open the beaches again. And I'm like, Do you have any scientists no. working for you at all that my, you might do?
0: My my favorite article was the one talking about how he thinks it's okay to start school up again because the kids aren't getting as sick as adults. Where do you think the kids go home to? (laughs)
1: Well, not only that, but it's not even accurate. Like, that's not scientifically sound. Okay, before we get too much on that tangent. Let's not
0: go to the tangent, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Yes,
1: yes, wear your mask. Do you have, like, what advice would you give up and coming authors out there? And I'm not doing this for personal reasons, but hashtag I am. So, what advice would you give out, out there? Yeah, and it's a fair question. You know, uh, we
2: we those of us who have uh, achieved a certain measure of success should be helping everyone else because none of us got here without help. You know, I was fortunate enough as a kid to to get to know, be mentored by Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson. I mean, oh that friggin' oh. insane. So, yeah. the fact that that happened, and they had no reason at all to, to go out there to help me. I was some hairy kid that was being dragged along to their, their meetings whenever they were in New York at the time um, because my, my middle school librarian was the secretary for their club. Uh, but they, they went out of their way to help me. So, so yes, I have, I have advice. A couple things. One, learn your craft. I mean, just because you're a natural storyteller doesn't mean you're publishable. It means you can tell a good story, but you may not be able to craft it well enough to be read beautifully. And you want it to be read beautifully. You want to honor the reader who is going to invest money and time. should always, everything you do, every step you take as a writer, there's some point at which you should say, what would the reader truly think of this? All right. So that's part of it. Learn your craft. Second, learn the difference between writing and publishing. One of the things Bradbury told me as a kid is, writing is an art. It's the intimate conversation between us and the reader. Publishing is the business uh, entirely concerned with selling copies of art. So if you go after a major publisher or agent and you get rejected, it's not personal. You know, it's not them saying, "Oh, you are a horrible writer. You couldn't write your name in the sand with a stick. Go away, or I'll have you killed." It's not that conversation. It's um, this is not what I am personally looking for at this moment. You know, so you go find someone else. But as far as as other skills, uh, learn social media. Um, we are well into the age when a writer is not going to be successful if you're not on social media. You get to learn how to use Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, maybe even uh, Snapchat, um, Instagram. Uh, I budget 10 minutes out of every writing hour for social media. Um, I don't write like uh, really extensive blogs or, or make elaborate posts. Half the time it's a sarcastic cartoon. or you know, I have a buddy, Dan Ferraro, who does the Bizarro comic. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. It's a one-panel yes. comic. So he sends me stuff to put up. So I'll put up, you know, or, or a movie link or something else. Uh, I'll have some fun. On social media, but I'm on social media all the time. So when I do promote something of myself, it's not the only message going out there. Also, social media is where you actually meet people. You have conversations. I wouldn't be on this po- podcast if it wasn't for uh, being found on Twitter, right? Yeah. So yeah. this, you know, being able to meet people, make new friends, like I am now, you know, getting getting the word out there, sharing conversations. Social media allows your community of writers, readers, and book people to be global. Um, also, don't ever let anyone talk you out of it. A writer, one of the first and most important things a writer has to, has to become is relentless. You cannot ever let someone say, or, or believe when somebody says, writing is too hard, you'll never make a buck, blah, 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 blah. It's a whole bunch of horseshit. I grew up, you know, I started out poor, I'm I, the first person in my family to even go to college, I dropped out of college. So clearly, you know, I, I was not being propelled into the writing world. I, I got here because I learned the business, and I learned the, the skill set, and I worked to improve that every day. Um, and I never let someone talk me out of it. I know it's tough. We all know writing is tough. We all know publishing is tough. Okay, we can take that as a given. So what do we talk about that's gonna help us get there? Um, I also believe writers should be parts of writers' groups. I have these things across the country called the Writers' Coffee House, which by the way, is open to everyone. Uh, we have a Facebook presence for the Writers Coffee House. We do them free on, on Zoom every month, uh, first Sunday of every month. It's writers helping writers for no reason other than writers should help other writers. And, um, you know, the, the, the one bit of advice, I, I, another bit of advice from, from uh, actually, two bits of advice, one from Bradbury, one from Athenson. The Bradbury one, is uh, when I asked him what he thinks I should write, he said, no, 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 no. See, here's, here's the question, write what you should want to read, and not just what you would like to read. Write the story, the book, you would go out of your way to track down, find, and read, write that story. Gotta write from a point of view of you as the passionate reader of your own work. If you're writing to the most passionate reader, not loyal reader, passionate reader, someone who's not gonna forgive your, your mistakes, but is going to be compelled by the, the, the depth and complexity and, 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 and richness of storytelling, right for that reader. So that's one thing. And the Matheson thing, really important, took this to heart. Um, he said that uh, writers, you know, if you let yourself, if you tell yourself, in fact, that you are one kind of writer, that's the only kind of writer you'll be, even if that market dies around you. Whereas if you say, I'm a writer and a writer writes, you're open to every possibility, and you'll be able to, to write. I, you know, My biggest successes are not in the fields I thought I was going to be successful in. My first huge success was Patient Zero, a thriller. I started out writing horror. My second huge success was Rotten Ruin, which has become an, a, a global bestseller. It's a, a successful webtoon. It's a development for film right now. And you know, it's required reading in thousands of schools. I had no interest in writing young adult. But the door opened and, you know, there was an opportunity to try it. Turns out that's what I do well, or it's one of the things I do well. So writing outside your comfort zone. If you look at Ray Bradbury's work, What Dreams May Come, Star of Echoes, Somewhere in Time, Shrinking Man, I Am Legend. No two of those books is on the same shelf for all the different genres. And none of his books were bestsellers, by the way. I Am Legend became a bestseller pos- posthumously when the Will Smith movie came out. Prior to that. Not one of his books was a bestseller, and yet he was a successful um, published writer his entire life. Oh, there's actually one more thing. Uh, Ray Bradbury's Ten Commandments for How to Be a Great Writer. Don't be a jackass. Don't be a jackass. Don't be a jackass. Well, you see where that's going. That's Bradbury's Ten Commandments <laughs> for How to Be a Great Writer.
1: I absolutely love that. Absolutely. You have been... Thoroughly amazing to have on this podcast, Jonathan. I want to, and um, you know, more you know, drinking and podcasting. I think is the best combination on the planet. I want to thank you so are much you, for. Are you suggesting that writers drink? I I actually <laughs> encourage it, not not to the point of alcoholism, but well, man. A couple of, of shots can make the difference of a story sometime if you're getting too wrapped up into it. Valerie. Um, <laughs> you have been thoroughly amazing. Obviously, it's very easy to find you, but what is the best method do you feel your fans should find you on? Um, yeah.
2: Well, if you go to my website, jonathanmaybury.com and spell my last name so you can actually find it, it's M A B R Y, not M-A-Y-B. Um, then uh, that links to all my other social media and also has a whole page there of free stuff for writers. Query letters, samples, synopsis, samples, nice. all the different downloadable things, all free. Go there. And then from there, you know, you can follow my newsletter, you can go find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. I do a, an Ask Me Anything every Thursday at 4 o'clock Pacific time, so adjust the time zone, on uh, my, my author page on Facebook. Come and have fun because I
1: got I got cool
2: toys. It's all come and play, you know.
1: That is wonderful. I want to thank you again for being a guest on um, our podcast, drinking with all. Oh, there's a Godzilla.
0: I think Godzilla.
1: I'm telling you, you're like my new favorite person in the world. Okay, so <laughs> I
2: have a lot of Jonathan- stuff my office. It keeps me keeps me, I'm not gonna say sane, but amused.
1: Uh, I don't think any of us as authors are sane. I don't think we'd be as good as we are if we were. So I want to thank you for being on the podcast. This has been Drinking with Authors. I'm Erica Lance. My co-host has been Valerie Willis. Nice to meet you. And guys, again. yeah, we'll see you next time.